Buses could power the shift to electric vehicles, revitalise public transport and even help operators rebuild revenue after suffering fare losses during the pandemic. To read more about why Britain needs electric buses and how Hitachi is powering this change, head to wired.uk forward slash Hitachi buses. Coming up today, the Uber lawsuit feeding frenzy, how growing grapes in space can make wine better on Earth, and the reality of life under Myanmar's internet shutdown. Welcome to the Wide UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when US regulators found that the single-shot Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine is both safe and effective. The vaccine, which is far cheaper to produce and easier to store than the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines, was more than 85% effective at preventing serious disease. It was also the week when the UK government set out its plan for easing social distancing regulations. If everything goes to plan, then all legal limits on contact will end by June the 21st, with other restrictions released gradually from March the 8th. It was also the week when Facebook-owned WhatsApp confirmed it would turn off messages and deactivate accounts of those who don't accept its new privacy policies. After shelving the change in January, it is now planned it will happen from May. And finally, Facebook reversed its ban on news content in Australia this week after the government agreed to change a landmark law that would force the social network and Google to pay for displaying news content. After all that rambling we did last week about Facebook's decision in Australia, it only went and immediately undid its decision in Australia. I know, such a downer. <laughs> well, I suppose so, although it, it seems that the uh, the knock-on effect of that is that legislatures all around the world are now quite angry at Facebook and would like a piece of the action. So stay tuned to that one. What did we learn this week, I wonder? Matt Reynolds. So I learned that the coolness of mint and the spice of peppers aren't technically flavours, they're physical sensations. So our tongues can detect five tastes, that's sweet, salty, bitter, sour and umami, but mintiness and spice aren't detected by taste buds. Instead, they're detected by nerves in the mouth that are responsible for detecting temperature and touch. Follow-up fact, did you know that there's toothpaste that is specific for kids? It's different to adult toothpaste. And what's different? Is it so it's not mint flavoured or is it it's just way, a softer mint? It's way, way, way less minty. Yeah. So I, I um, discovered this uh, the hard way by accidentally giving my two-year-old adult minty toothpaste um, the other day. The, the look Fun. on his face was, was one of pure shock. He'd oh, never experienced, he'd never experienced something so minty. Yeah, I would have said, you know, I wouldn't give... You know, a two-year-old child like a really hot pepper, but you don't, as an adult, think that tooth- minty toothpaste is, you know, hugely minty. So there you go. You must kind of grow into that taste and, I don't know, get familiar with it somehow. He, he seemed very, very confused. All right. Um, what did you learn this week, Natasha? 
I learned this week that Israeli rescuers have discovered that mayonnaise, which is my fourth favourite condiment, is a miracle cure for sea turtles that are suffering from the effects of an oil spill. They found that feeding the reptiles mayonnaise helped to clean their system and it breaks down tar. Two two follow-up questions, Natasha. Um, Great, okay. what What are your first, your top three condiments? Um, I order. have to say, it's, 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 it's a bit, no, I, I, yeah, I don't want to reveal that. I, I, I've been mocked for this before, so I prefer not to say. Um, Very well. Um, let's just say they're not popular condiments that anyone would be proud of saying. Is one of can the must condiments. Can we you guess can what guess. the condiments are? So I'm going to guess, top is burger sauce, uh, second is salad cream, which is disgusting, and third is um, uh, Marmite. No, you're wrong. Is one one <laughs> of them salad cream, though, isn't it? No, one of them is not salad cream, but one of them is burger sauce. I will admit that. Podcast at <laughs> wired.co.uk if you want to try and guess Natasha's favourite condiments. If anyone gets it right, um, we'll promise to read it out on the show next week. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Um, my second follow-up question was, how the hell did the Israeli rescuers discover that giving mayonnaise to um, to sea turtles was a good idea? So here's what I think happened. I think that they probably had some mayonnaise to hand and they thought, why not? Uh, Because that's often how I feel about condiments. So, (laughs) but I don't actually know. So I will find out. We'll fact check that one. Or if anyone knows, podcast at wired.co.uk. You do our work for us. Uh, Matt Burgess, what did you learn this week? This week, I learned that in Lord of the Rings, uh, for the filming, they created the one ring to actually be a giant ring. So they had this uh, version that they used for close-ups so they could get a really high definition of uh, the actual ring. Great fact, Matt Burgess. I learned this week that there's been uproar in Canada over butter. So butter fanatics across Canada have noticed in recent weeks that their favourite spread is somehow less spreadable. The abnormally hard butter doesn't soften properly at room temperature, and some experts believe it may be the result of churned-up palm oil fat being put into cow feed. An official investigation (laughs) has been launched. That's gross. But also, butter is a condiment, right? I don't well, think it is. I think it's a Oh, God, is, you, is your favourite condiment? Are you claiming butter is your favourite condiment? I No comment. <laughs> Podcast at wired.co.uk if you'd like to try and guess Natasha's favourite condiments. All right. Um, our first story this week is all about Uber. It was all about Uber last week, but quite a lot's happened in the last few days, Natasha. Can you catch us up? Yeah, so we spoke about the landmark Supreme Court decision in the podcast last week. On Friday, judges ruled that Uber drivers should be classed as workers for the first time. This means that they'll be entitled to things like the minimum wage, holiday and sick pay and pensions. Since Friday, thousands of drivers have decided to sue the company to claim those rights. Over 12,000 people, or the equivalent of over 20% of Uber's workforce in the UK. That's a huge, huge amount of people and one of the less surprising things has been uber's reaction to this ruling so the court rejected uber's appeal um but rather than accept it and move on 
Uber has decided to keep on fighting and claim that the judgment only applies to 25 drivers that originally bought the claim back in 2015, which is kind of a preposterous suggestion to make, although I guess employment tribunals will decide on that. So the drivers were effectively told by Uber, this ruling doesn't apply to you. How is Uber allowed to do that, given everything that's happened in the last five years? Yeah, so Uber is actually technically right. So the judgment on Friday only automatically makes the original 25 claimants workers. But the wording of the message that was sent by Uber to drivers on Friday was problematic. So the unions, the drivers who brought the original case and lawyers saw this as an attempt to stop people from trying to claim their rights in courts. Lawyers told me that drivers had contacted them unsure about what rules apply to them and whether they couldn't claim compensation at all because of what Uber was saying. Of course, you're right, James, it would be easier and faster for Uber to just recognise drivers as workers independently, and it still could. But for now, it's decided to perform some damage control and survey its current 60,000 drivers in the UK to determine what they think and formulate a plan in the coming weeks. Now, Uber is saying that this survey will inform how it officially reacts to this judgment. But obviously, when you're leading a survey, sometimes the questions you can ask can be leading. You might want to try and um, steer people towards a certain response by phrasing the question in a way. Now, you've been looking at screenshots of the questionnaire that's been sent out to drivers. And some of those questions seemed a little bit skewed towards what Uber wanted to hear, and specifically around this question of whether the drivers themselves wanted to be classed as workers. So what exactly was going on with that, with that survey and how it framed its questions? Yeah, you're right. So no one was asked whether they wanted to be classed as workers in this survey, which was about 27 questions long. Uh, I mentioned a couple of the questions in the article that we published this week, like how important is earning income on the app was one of the questions asked, or how important is having more flexible working hours and avoiding set shifts. But other questions were a little bit leading. So drivers were asked to choose between two options, either being able to access new benefits and protections, such as pension contributions, knowing that this could mean I lose control of when and where I drive or they could choose I value the ability to work flexibly and determine when and where I drive so two completely different things kind of jumped into one answer and one completely different thing put in another or I don't know um, so it is really interesting things. So some of the things could be really easily misinterpreted. Uber asked drivers to rate how important they thought driver benefits were in brackets the company had put Uber Pro its driver reward program and it didn't include anything about pensions holidays or minimum wage so if you clicked on driver benefits as your most important thing that wouldn't necessarily mean the benefits that you think they are there was a segment asking drivers how they would like to share feedback with uber it didn't mention unions by name just through a community in person or online of other drivers and delivery people not organized by uber and it was the last of nine different answer options so you can see how these questions could end up with a distorted result of what it's like to drive for uber of course uber is also conducting roundtable discussions at the moment with drivers to find out a bit more about what they want but without addressing the elephant in the room which is do you want to be classed as a worker it's kind of hard to see how they would get a clear sense of what people want. One thing that was quite evident and didn't really understand uh, after the uh, Supreme Court decision was um, not a lot happened to begin with. There wasn't uh, some big change that happened or there wasn't an announcement of change happening. The government didn't really say anything. It was all sort of rather anticlimactic. Why has nothing happened yet? 
Yeah, so the government could have stepped in on Friday and told Uber that the Supreme Court judgment isn't ambiguous and that it's time to implement some changes. So far, it hasn't done that. But people are already springing into action to force some kind of reaction from the government. I was sent a letter this afternoon from the chairman of the Economic Affairs Committee to the Financial Secretary to the Treasury, which could be summed up in one sentence. He said, what are you going to do about this judgment? Now, lawyers have said HMRC could also step in to launch an investigation into how much minimum wage and back tax payments Uber owes. That also hasn't happened yet. Instead, this kind of looks set to play out in court if if the government doesn't respond to the pressure from within the government and and from without. The only thing that cannot be ignored is a a sort of tiny nugget inside the Supreme Court judgment on Friday, which stated that Uber's current operating model in London is in fact illegal. This technically puts TfL, Transport for London, which is the the, uh, entity that gives licences to operators in London, in a position to reconsider whether Uber, and in fact any other ride-hailing operator, should continue operating in London at all. Already the drivers that brought the original claim against Uber have written to the Mayor of London and TfL and called on them to force Uber to recognise drivers as workers as part of their licence renewal in March 2022. Just to go back to... <clears throat> to that survey, which is kind of preposterous, although I suppose Uber has its reasons for doing it, to ask Uber drivers after all of this, what do you want when you've got the law and a Supreme Court judgment sitting just out of earshot or whatever? It, it It's kind of preposterous, isn't it? It sort of shows a, a level of extraordinary arrogance from Uber that it can be presented with a Supreme Court judgment and go, no, hang on, I'm just going to do a survey. Yes, it's interesting because Uber's kind of been put between a rock and a hard place. The situation is that this judgment only affects Uber. So from their perspective as a business, they're facing humongous costs from any litigation that's brought against them. They're facing back taxes and you know minimum wage claims, as well as having to pay potentially 60,000 people's wages. But they're the only one. They're sort of in isolation within the ride-hailing community. So there are all the other competitors in, in this market, in the UK market, are not affected by this. So from their perspective, if they were to recognise people independently as workers, suddenly they've got all these costs and they would have to somehow find the money to pay for it. That would mean potentially hiking up prices or changing the way the model works completely. So they'd have to factor in a way to make sure that everyone that's logged onto the app has sufficient amount of rides to make it worth their while to pay the minimum wage, which is a huge upturning of the entire model for Uber. But more importantly, if you look at that, them doing that by themselves they would basically potentially be pricing themselves out of the market so i think what's what's going on here is very much behind the scenes them trying to reach some sort of agreement some sort of notion to present an, a different option almost to the supreme court judgment on the table and say okay well if our drivers are sixty thousand of them agree that they don't know what they want or they agree that they prefer flexibility over gaining minimum wage then that's what we're going to go with and unless they decide to fight them in court unless all of these drivers take uber to court and take them to to rights and say we want all these rights for ourselves that doesn't necessarily change anything so they could just agree something circumvent the supreme court decision and carry on as normal which is it's it's crazy but it's true it does seem like a, a remarkable get out for uber given everything that's happened and there's a lot more going on here right there's a bigger question about uber's survival in europe so last week you mentioned that individual countries would be making decisions on whether drivers are workers but there's something else going on at a european union wide level that could have profound implications for uber 
Yeah, that's right. So the European Commission this week uh, launched a sort of pre-report because it's it's working on a consultation to determine what to do about gig economy workers' rights. Now, now what we heard from the European Commission yesterday, as in Wednesday, sorry, recording on Thursday, it was pretty basic. It outlined that loads of people are turning to the gig economy jobs during the pandemic because there's no other work out there. And they're concerned that workers' rights have been eroded. Now, its own figures showed that 11% of all EU workers have worked for a gig economy company at least once. And it touches upon the fact that people are claiming that they're being evaluated by an algorithm and that if they're found wanting, they're dismissed and barred from working, which they consider unfair. Now, all of this is at really early stages and politicians will now enter into a six-week period to talk to unions and gig economy employers to reach an agreement on how workers should be classified and what benefits they should receive moving forward. But Uber isn't at the table for those discussions, neither is any of the kind of big ride-hailing companies. And there's a risk that given that the UK is one of the very few countries in Europe with such a thing as a worker, which is an in-between sort of status between employees and contractors, that the European Commission could just decide that everyone working in the gig economy should be employees and have done with it. Um, Uber is lobbying hard for that not to happen. Um, they've put together this sort of white paper plan to try to elbow their way onto the negotiation uh, table, uh, basically offering benefits that don't forego flexibility, similar to some of the arguments that it used in California on the Proposition 22 uh, amendment. In six weeks, we'll know what happens next. And when we say Uber, that's kind of shorthand for the whole gig economy, right? And when we're talking yeah. about Uber becoming a bit of an outlier in the UK, if it were to decide to give employment rights to its 60,000 drivers, well, that would surely then put tremendous amounts of pressure on the government to introduce legislation to force all gig economy companies to afford their, their well, their contractors, those rights. If not, it just becomes a process of whack-a-mole in the courts, right? Until every single company has been hauled up before the Supreme Court and then has to do the back pay thing that Uber's being asked to do. And that potentially becomes a process of litigation that puts a lot of these companies out of business, right? It's true. Like You you think about the situation as follows. the, The legislation is finally catching up to to the model we've had since 2006 a model that's kind of worked it's had its you know bumps and bruises along the way but it's grown to this massive employer of people whether it likes it or not and and this situation is now catching up with it so yes it could it could do it the easy way and it could do it the hard way uh, but but what is very clear here is that the status quo no longer applies they can no longer go about and say we're going to continue on for the foreseeable future pretending that you know gig economy workers are in fact contractors and they don't deserve any kind of benefits because in the back of their minds they already have calculated how much this is going to cost them um, and now they're going to have to factor that into their business model now the the, the interesting thing about the europe-wide thing is that yes all gig economy workers um, sorry companies have come together to kind of try and, and put their case to the european commission so that they have a voice at the table but in the uk Uber is public enemy number one when it comes to people bringing claims against it. No one else is bringing the same level of gig economy class actions against Ola or Taxify or any of its competitors. So it wouldn't surprise me at all to hear that Uber is trying to lobby for the government to implement some of the changes that it kind of set out in the Taylor Review in 2017 that never really came to fruition now so that they're not the only outlier in the UK and they don't end up basically pricing themselves out of the market because of what happened in the courts and potentially seeing themselves in in the cold, right? 
compared yeah. to the, their competitors. And so you're correct. Yeah, it should to be say really that- interesting to see. Exactly. The the UK government has definitely dragged its feet on this. And the, the reason that the gig economy has been able to grow in the way that it's grown is because the legislation doesn't exist to tell it to grow in a different way, right? Podcast at wired.co.uk. Um, have you ever been an Uber driver or worked in the gig economy? What do you make of the changes that are happening really quite quickly now in the UK, but also overseas? Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on the future of the gig economy and what it means for both gig economy workers and people who use gig economy services, right? We've come to rely on them quite a bit during the pandemic. Our second story this week takes us all the way to Myanmar, where a very, very concerning um, military coup has been playing out alongside an internet blackout, Matt Burgess. Yeah, so it's almost been a month since uh, the military in Myanmar uh, staged a coup and replaced the government there. Um, Since then, its actions have been widely condemned by the international community with calls for sanctions to be introduced against the military government. Um, In recent days, we've also seen social media companies such as Facebook uh, banning key military pages and accounts across uh, its platform in particular. Um, At at the same time, there have also been increasing protests uh, among the streets and uh, the military coup has been trying to keep control of the situation there. Uh, And it's increasingly being aggressive and attacking protesters uh, and clamping down on people's fundamental human rights. Um, And once side impact of the coup happening has been the control of the country's internet. So as the coup took place, armed soldiers ordered telecoms technicians to turn off the internet for vast waves of the population. And it's been reported that soldiers also cut through wires uh, to make sure things were definitely being turned off at that time. Uh, It was a coordinated action that stopped people finding out what was happening in real time. And since then, uh, the internet control has really only uh, increased. So we've seen this or similar things happen in a, bu- in a bunch of countries over the past few years. We've seen internet shutdowns in Iran or India and lots of other parts of the world. But can you talk to me what, what happened after that initial shutdown in Myanmar? What went on from that point? Yeah, things have sort of really escalated in terms of uh, the internet controls that have been put in place. And for a little bit of context, uh, Myanmar has is a relatively young technological country, but the internet is obviously a key element for it. So uh, within uh, within the country, uh, Facebook is for a lot of people the internet. Um, people. Uh, message communicate get their news from facebook it is a very core part of uh of the country uh, and it's sort of uh the infrastructure and, and how people live there um and as you as you say matt around the world uh sort of internet shutdowns uh have increased in recent years more than sort of 30 countries in the last couple of years have shut down the internet for tens of millions of people at a time uh the longest being in kashmir in india uh for hundreds of days that was um and that's sort of like what we're starting to see rolling out across uh, Myanmar as well. Um, So since the coup, it's been pretty regular for the military to shut down uh, the web there. Um, And there have been, this has been done in a few different ways. So there have been entire web blackouts. So during some of the protests, nothing has been accessible. There has been uh, the internet turned off both through smartphones and through through wired uh, Wi-Fi router connections as well. Uh, And there's been a number of more specific blocks taking place. So 
I mentioned that Facebook is obviously a huge part of the of the country's uh, sort of infrastructure, really. And uh, there have been blocks on Facebook, on WhatsApp, in a few other services uh, taking place, specifically being blocked, while other parts of the internet have also been accessible. Uh, but more recently, there have been nightly shutdowns. So um, at the point of we're recording, for the last 11 nights, the internet has been shut off from 1am to 9am every single night. It's important to remember that we're in a global pandemic and a lot of people are kind of basically stuck at home and the internet for a lot of us has become a very important part of our lives, right? So the people that are on the ground at the moment, what does having the internet shut off like this realistically mean for them and how are they being impacted by this? Yeah, so it's taken a huge toll really on people's work, their their personal lives and sort of even the uh, the country's economy as well. Um, and in an article we published this week, we sort of went through some of the sort of human toll that this uh, internet shutdown has taken. And this was done through the lens of one couple uh, living in Yangon, uh, where many of the major protests have been taking place. Um, so this couple were in their mid-30s. One of them is a, a citizen of Myanmar. The other one is a, a American citizen and they have a young child together. Um, so when the coup first happened, they were at home uh, uh, as many people would have been because it was it very much in the very early hours of the morning um and that's when these first black blackouts happened um and they essentially told us that um once the internet gone down for them they had to rely upon neighbors and people with uh cable tv is the this couple didn't have a cable tv themselves um so they started um asking their neighbors what was happening seeing people who who were watching the tv and, and sort of had a better grip of uh what was going um and then sort of as these uh, uh internet shutdowns and blackouts have unfolded uh they explained to us that really sort of like uh when you know the internet blackout is coming particularly at like 1am you, you you're basically there you're, you're trying to prepare for it a little bit um so one of the, one of this couple told us that they were uh basically sitting and staring at their phone trying to load as much information as they could before the internet went off so when it did go off they could uh try and see exactly what was going on in the ground around local areas uh, uh, through sort of Facebook pages and information available there and they said that once it is turned off essentially um, to, to quote them they said that you're, you're terrified of what uh, could happen and what they could do they being the police or military in this situation because you can't communicate with the world you can't tell people what's going on um, you could be arrested and you could just have your phone taken and without anybody ever being able to find out or know um and then sort of as as you sort of like get through the night and, and through these scenarios basically the people there saying that yes as soon as it turns to to 9 a.m that they're very much on their phones they're they're looking at facebook they're seeing what other people are about to post or as they're posting it checking international news um and sort of seeing what's been happening very near to them without without them being able to know and of this couple one of them has uh, moved back to the us uh in the last few days uh with their child and essentially they're devising times with the t with difference in time zones uh and sort of other things that are going on with the blackouts as well being able to speak and how they can speak as a couple like obviously uh it's not it's virtually impossible for them to sort of like speak in potentially real time when the internet is shut off and and not be able to see uh each other their family the children uh, and just being able to sort of like access any information at all has become very difficult nigh on impossible when when these shut shutdowns are happening Something that really comes across in the article that you worked on this week, Matt, is this couple, you know, separated by almost um, uh, half of half of the span of the earth. Um, 
not knowing for hours at a time whether the um the the father of the the child back in Myanmar is safe um the internet goes down there's no way to communicate and it's a case of waiting for 9am in in Yangon to kick in to find out that everything is okay and you know aside from that on a broader scale this nightly shutdown seems to be designed to allow the police to or or the military to carry out acts of violence or to crack down on protests to stop people from being able to organize and communicate and during the hours of daylight you can see what's happening um, and probably more easily get a grip on this but from what you've heard from the couple that you spoke to um, and from the, the general vibe on the ground in Myanmar, this risks setting a precedent, right? This is what people are worried of, that 11 days quickly turns into 11 weeks, 11 months, and it just becomes normal that free and easy access to the internet for an entire nation evaporates. Yeah, that's very much sort of like the concern. Uh, obviously, there are lots of sort of concerns about overall uh, people's rights and things like that that is happening elsewhere during the coup. But obviously, we're sort of focusing on the internet aspect of it here. And there is this uh, worry that it could essentially be causing a bit of a sort of like creeping change to what happens going on and into the future um so at the same time there are sort of like internet laws being debated well not debated but proposed by uh sort of the the military government around sort of how people's data be can can be collected and how people can be prosecuted for what they're posting on the internet and uh i think as we're recording this essentially some of those um proposals are being uh they may not happen uh, but they've been put forward at one stage and the real fear is that this sort of control uh could become very normal um so the people that we're speaking to are saying that the perspective is that the government is trying to make them comfortable with the situation uh with the internet being turned off at night once you're used to it being turned off at night and not being able to access it in the morning or just before you go to bed uh maybe the those few hours could uh be extended could change uh, and could make the controls even stricter and then their sort of like fears and worries are looking at sort of like other nations around the world where where the freedoms online are curtailed and sort of becoming more like those areas um so yeah it is one of these things where it's being sort of stated that this shouldn't be a thing that is overlooked and people's ability to document what is happening and access information about sort of the scenarios that they're in is something that is uh, of a huge importance really yeah and you know we've we've got a nation like North Korea where these rights have never existed and we've got a nation in Myanmar where these rights until a few days ago did exist and they've very very quickly been taken away so there's huge concern on the ground that this does set a precedent and become normalized podcast at wired.co.uk if uh, you want to bring up anything with um regarding Matt's story I do encourage you to uh, head to the show notes and track down the link it's well worth reading the story of the couple that we spoke to to get an idea of what it's really like on the ground in Myanmar our third story this week um always a bit of variety on the wired uk podcast space grapes Matt Reynolds Absolutely. A little bit of, of relief, hopefully, after two quite important stories. But actually, hopefully by the end of it, you will also realise that sending grapes to space is very, very important. Now, I, I'm not sure if 
any of you are obsessed with this category of things I'm about to discuss as I am, but I'm really, really fascinated by things that people send into space as a PR stunt. So perhaps most famously in recent years, um, there was a Tesla car that was sent aboard a SpaceX uh, rocket into space, and obviously a very, very famous example. But weirdly enough, food makes a lot of appearances on that list. So for instance, there's the tandoori lamb chop, which was sent by a um, a restaurant in East London. There is a haggis that was attached to a weather balloon and shot 20, uh, 20 miles into the atmosphere to celebrate Burns Night. And there was the chicken nugget that was sent into space by Iceland, by the supermarket Iceland, and I looked this up and Iceland described the nugget as reaching the equivalent height of 880,000 chicken nuggets, which from now on probably should be how we convey all space distance just in terms of chicken nuggets. But on January 13th, 2020, there's a bit of a twist on this theme, and instead of food being shot into space, it came crashing back down to Earth, specifically splashing down just off the coast of Florida in a SpaceX cargo dragon. And among all this stuff that came back from the International Space Station, there were some stem cells, there was a, a sextant for space navigation, there were some um, kind of special cells for, for um, modelling human tissue. There were also 320 snippets of Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon grapevines hidden among all of that uh, stuff that came from space. Okay, so lamb chop into space just because, chicken nugget into space just because, haggis into space, why the hell not? Grapes in space, now you're talking, there's a point here, there's some science behind this, right? There is some science, and this is all the work of a French company called Space Cargo Unlimited. I should say, when I say this is all the work, I mean the grapes specifically. They're not, they're not flinging the nuggets and the, the haggis. This is just the, the grapes and some other stuff that they're, they're putting up there. So by sending these vines to grow in the harsh conditions aboard the International Space Station for the last 10 months, what the company is hoping to do is to create vines that are hardy enough that they can survive these ever-changing conditions that we have down here on Earth. And actually, this is part of a you know, a rising tide of research of private companies that believe the solution to feeding you know, a growing population amidst worsening climate change could be found somewhere on Earth. Now, I've gone through some of the silly examples of stuff being flung into space. I don't think anyone was really hoping that that chicken nugget would ever be eaten by someone. But there is quite a long history of food being grown in space you know, itself you know, for, for good reason. So we've had lettuce, Chinese cabbage and Russian kale have all been grown successfully on NASA's vegetable production system, which is a, basically a, a small space garden. It's about the size of a suitcase uh, where they can you know, put around six plants that grow on this pillow of tailored nutrients. So that's aboard the ISS. We've also had fresh radishes that have been grown in mini labs and even a cultured beefsteak cultivated on board. So we actually have some experience of growing food in space already. Okay, I have two key questions. First of all, this experiment is about growing food in space to feed astronauts. So what is the point of sending it back to Earth again and sending those those bottles back to, to us? Secondly, you're wrong about not wanting to find out what that nugget tastes like because I'm keen to know what does the what does the wine taste like when it comes back and does it taste different from normal wine? 
Well, that's a really, really good point because part of the reason, well, I'll get on to the, the, the point of the grapevines in a second, but part of the reason of sending the, you know, the wine up to space is that this is a very unusual, very dry atmosphere. Atmospheres on, on Earth is changing. You know, it's getting, in some places it's getting drier, in some places it's getting wetter. And so the whole idea was, well, how does wine change if it's aged in a very, very extreme environment? Now, I have to admit, I'm not 100% convinced about the wine because I, you know, I think that if, you go on, if you're on Earth and your cellar gets a little bit, I don't know, dry or it gets a little bit dusty, you can move it to another cellar. It's pretty unlikely your cellar is ever going to uh, be, you know, have zero gravity or, or have the unique atmosphere of um, the ISS. But there is there are lots of good reasons why you might try and grow some plants uh, in space and then bring them back down to Earth. So the idea behind these vines and potentially later on other types of types of crop is that the experience of microgravity on board the ISS plus the high levels of radiation they experience will trigger organisms to evolve and develop more resilient traits. So this could be traits that would leave them far better suited to the severe terrestrial conditions that might be brought about as a result of climate change. Now, of course, back on Earth, plants already have, you know, evolved responses to common stresses such as temperature or chemicals, you know, maybe soil gets more salty or they have droughts, they've not got enough water or they've got too much water. But what we can't replicate is the absence of gravity. Now, that's a very unique stressor that most plants never had to deal with. And the idea is if you grow plants in space, you know, in this, in this, um, you know, place where you have no gravity, that it'll force them to adapt and rearrange to its new conditions and develop characteristics that it would never be able to create on Earth. So we're trying to unlock something in plants that we're not seeing at the moment and we don't think we could ever see on Earth. And as you say, there's been a lot of stuff that has been sent to space uh, over, the, over the years. Um, do we have any sort of evidence of these uh, sort of uh, traits or stuff changing? Do we know that this this is definitely going to happen? Yeah, we have some reason to think that we'll see things that we wouldn't see on Earth. So and there's a couple of reasons we know this. So one is that we've already grown seedlings from a small white flowering plant that is native to Africa. So we sent these seedlings to the ISS back in 2013. And we realised that when you compared those plants to ones that were left on Earth, they developed different genetic responses related to disease, cold and drought. And what happened is their roots also developed this new pattern of skewing. So this is how they, you know, um, they kind of work underground to navigate for additional water and nutrients. We also know that certain types of algae have been shown to grow more rapidly and produce more, more oil if they're in low orbit. And in January, microgravity conditions helped researchers on that ISS vegetable production system perform a plant transplant between two different types of lettuce that in normal circumstances, in normal gravity, might have killed them. And in fact, we also have evidence of this from humans as well. I don't know if anyone remembers Scott Kelly, but he was that astronaut that in 2015, he went to the ISS while his twin brother Mark stayed back on Earth. And we found that Scott's genes activated in ways, um, altering his immune system, his bone formation and eyesight, that you didn't see in his brother back on Earth. And even once he'd returned to Earth, around 7% of his gene expression remained changed. So there's this idea that being in space might trigger these changes that we just couldn't get on Earth and that actually they might have some lasting results that we could then harness back here. But it is it is a bit of a gamble, right? There's nothing to say that the alterations that humans or or um wine grown in, in space that that they'll be useful, right? 
So what's next for our plucky space grapes? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're totally right to exercise a little bit of scepticism here because there are a few different points. One, um, well, if you kind of want a plant to make a random change to its genome, you could just bombard it with radiation back on Earth. That's called mutagenesis. It's been done quite long, you know, back in the, you know, uh, in the 1950s and the 1960s, that basically was how we created modified forms of crops. We bombarded them with radiation. We were like, oh, hey, that lettuce has grown, bit, grown bigger or you know, more likely that wheat plant has grown taller. We'll take that and breed it. So, this idea of just exposing it to random changes, we, you can actually do that back on Earth anyway. And of course, now on Earth, we actually have more precise ways of inducing these changes. You know, um, previously we had, uh, you know, GMO techniques, you know, uh, gene transfers from different organisms. Now we have CRISPR, which means we can focus in on a trait. But people like, you know, the folks at Space Cargo are limited. They say, well, we want to see what plants can come up with if they're just given a whole new environment. And they're, they're basically hoping that the plant will come up with the solution, the plant will come up with something new, rather than us having to focus it and do it ourselves. Of course, what they'll have to do now is find out what's different about these vines. So now they're back on Earth, these grapevines are going to be there, they're going to be rehydrated, they'll be replanted, and they'll be observed as they grow for um, any changes to their genetic expression. So we'll be watching out for changes in their response to stressors like temperature and salt levels in soil. And researchers will be taking samples from their buds to check for alterations in their metabolism and metabolic pathways. And this could be really important because there are changes in some of these pathways. It could affect the chemical compounds and the you know, biological pathways that give us flavour and nutrients. And although this is kind of funny and seems kind of silly, sending wine and grapes up to the ISS and, and getting it back down here, for people that are in the wine business, this is really, really serious. You know, um, in France, I think that the growing time or like the ripening time of grapes is advanced by 13 days because the weather has changed. So different regions are seeing you know really big changes they're kind of struggling to deal with. And actually the team at Space Cargo unlimited when they opened their you know package of vines some of them cried they were so they were so overawed and it felt like you know maybe this is a key maybe i'm staring at the future of our you know our new vintage our new kind of way of um growing plants so it, it felt like quite a momentous occasion for a lot of them and it's not just vines that this is being done with so in 2020 a Colorado-based company called Front Range Biosciences sent hemp, which is basically a version of the kind of cannabis plant, and coffee tissue into space with a similar goal to really understand how zero gravity affects plants' metabolic pathways. Um, and as part of the experiment, nearly 500 plant cultures were sent to the ISS in an incubator, and then they were monitored remotely. Now they're back on Earth, and the, the team is now growing out these cultures and trying to work out how this microgravity affects the plant. So in lots of different areas, people are starting to you know, think, maybe something's going to happen here that we can utilise, and it's best to send loads of plants to space, get them back, and see what happens. So who knows, maybe in 20 years we could be drinking a vintage of Merlot that started on the ISS, but it might be a little while before we can see if that's the case. You can kind of see the marketing blurb on the back of the bottle of wine right now, can't you? Fruity, great accompaniment for cheese and red meat grown in space. Very good. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure it can attract a a premium for some space wine with some space age cheese as well. (laughs) Space cheese. Yep, coming up soon. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Um, I'm not really sure what to ask people about this one. Would you drink wine grown in space, I suppose? What else should yes. we be 
sending into space, would you eat a chicken nugget that had been sent into space? Yes. And what are <laughs> Natasha's three favourite condiments? Podcast <laughs> at wired.co.uk. Time for a couple of your emails before we scuttle off. Matt Reynolds, you've got one for us. So Tim emailed in and Tim had just finished listening to episode 504, where I brought in a fact about the word algorithm, which came from a scholar called Al Khwarizmi, who wrote a big math book. And basically that, you know, kind of a version of his name became our word algorithm. Tim has taken my fact to the next level and said that actually we get the world, the word algebra, algebra from the shortened name of his book, which was al Jabra, so or algebra. I'm I'm kind of pronouncing that wrong, but it's kind of algebra, and then it becomes algebra. So here we go. This 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 one guy, the source of all of these words. If anyone would like to build on that fact another time, podcast at wired.co.uk. If there are any more things to be learnt from a ninth century book um, about mathematics, Matt Burgess, another one from you. Yeah, so Chris writes in about the uh, Facebook news story that we were talking around last week, saying that they uh, deleted uh, Facebook from their phone a few years ago. Um, maybe not from their phone, maybe from everything. Um, yeah, I think from everything. Um, and now only check a few dedicated sites, uh, such as the BBC, Wired, The Verge, etc., uh, for a lot of their news. And they said that while this is good for sort of wider topics, uh, local websites are fairly ineffective at providing news other than at like a city level. Uh, so his wife, who still has a Facebook account, will uh, almost daily update uh, him with news from the village and the local area, uh, saying that Facebook does have a place, but a smaller alternative may be more suitable, uh, but would never be able to grow large enough to compete. If Chris isn't already on next door, I wholeheartedly recommend it. It's been a, a constant source of entertainment for my partner and I during the pandemic for, for local news and drama next door is slightly different to Facebook. Um, that's not an official endorsement. Uh, one more email in the inbox this week. Uh, a really lovely one from Diane and Rich, who write in all the way from New Jersey in the US under the subject line, best podcast ever. I mean, if you want us to read out your email on the show, that's a good place to start. So they say that they've been listening since the summer of 2020 and have really relied on our humour and camaraderie to get us through the worst, hopefully, of the pandemic. But they write that not having any maps on the podcast recently was very jarring, and they'd like to suggest slash demand that at least one mat be present each week. Now, we can't make, can't make promises. The mats are, are busy human beings, um, but we will endeavour to bring at least one mat onto the show each and every week. Ideally two, because you can never have too many mats, apart from we've only got two, so... It will be two maximum. They uh, also said that they loved Amit's kidney fact from the other week and enjoyed my reference to hot cross buns, which apparently aren't a thing in America. There we go. Lastly, they wanted to share that they love the way that we pronounce words, including respiratory and expletive, and that they're now calling Porter John's Portaloos instead. A timely reminder that we've got a wonderful global audience. Thanks so much for writing in and for um, all of the kind words that you've said about our humble podcast. On that note, if anyone would like to leave a five-star review on uh, the podcast platform of your choice, please do. Um, the, the, more, the more feedback that's positive, the better. And we like compliments. So please do do that. That's it for this week. Uh, we'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye. 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 